Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 57 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to welcome Peter Ward, a paleontologist at the University of Washington in Seattle and a well-known author and science communicator. Most famously, Ward is co-author, along with University of Washington astronomer Donald Brownlee, of the best-selling nonfiction book, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, first published some two decades ago. However, Ward's 1992 book, Methuselah's Trail, received a Golden Trilobite Award from the Paleontological Society as the best popular science book of the year. Ward earned his Ph.D. in geology from Canada's McMaster University in 1976 and currently specializes in the study of mass extinction events. But today we'll primarily be discussing what's changed since Rare Earth was first published in 2000. Ward joins us from Seattle. Peter, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Bruce, thank you so much for having me. First off, what is a paleontologist, for listeners who aren't familiar with that term? Uh, we study really old, dead stuff. We're not archaeologists. Uh, we don't really, well, a few do, but we don't really go after cultural stuff. Everything we look at is far, far, far older. It's It really has to have turned to stone to become within our province. So why is paleontology important in the understanding of the origin and or proliferation of any sort of life in the cosmos? Yeah, that's such a really interesting question, Bruce, and it goes back to some very interesting NASA history. Um, as you well remember, the famous Mars meteorite that was found in Antarctica, ALH 8 something, 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 sparked Clinton back in the 90s to produce what he called the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which was a multi-university outdoor center to study life off the Earth, to study astrobiology. What they quickly found was that astrobiology required multidisciplinarity, the ability to really look at data from so many disparate fields. And strangely enough, among the few sciences that require one master several fields simultaneously is paleontology. So that early in the days of the Astro Astrobiology Institute, about one-third of the principal investigators who read their, led their teams were astrobiologists. And in fact, the director of the whole institute was picked to be coming from the field of paleontology. We just were comfortable with looking at many different brands of science, integrating them, and then, perhaps most importantly, being able to tell people in less complex terms how multiplicities of fields uh, lent themselves to astrobiological investigations. So you and Brownlee are now working on a Rare Earth sequel, tentatively titled The Rare Earth Hypothesis, Assessing the Frequency of Complex Life in the Cosmos, in the age of exoplanet discovery. Give us a gist of the two main precepts for the rare earth hypothesis. Well, the whole idea for the first book actually came about 
because Brownlee and I finally just sort of rebelled against popular culture saying over and over, yeah, there's aliens everywhere. I mean, that, that was the time within several decades after Star Wars and Star Trek and aliens, aliens, aliens. Um, we just sat down and we asked ourselves, it was over a lunch in the faculty club, gee, I wonder how many alien intelligences there really are. And Brownlee said, I bet not very many. And I said, you know, I bet you're right, but if we're going to bet, do we have any house money to bet with? Why are we betting that? And we just sat down. And it seemed that because microbial life appeared on Earth fairly early in Earth history, uh, it was it was clearly possible, unless we were seeded, unless, of course, microbes came from some other heavenly body. But that just begs the case. I mean, the microbes evolved in this solar system fairly early, either on Mars or Earth, uh, probably didn't come from outside the solar system. Therefore, it probably wasn't that hard, but then it also took billions of years to get to the intelligence that could study microbes with a microscope. So looking at what it took, that's what paleontology brought in. And Don really looks at the solar system and planetary systems. And he thought deeply about what are the conditions that allowed life on Earth not just to begin, but to flourish. What are the astronomical conditions? I brought in the geological and biological conditions. And through that happy merger, rare Earth was born. We were looking at what are the possibilities and how do you give the odds of getting complex life? And by complex life, Bruce, we're not just talking about intelligence. We're not just talking about human-like brains. We're talking about animals, flatworms, flatworms. Even that level of complexity of animals, we believe, will be of far, far different numbers, fewer numbers than microbes. But the, the rare earth hypothesis was also hated in some circles, most notably in the offices of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence uh, uh, Institute, or the SETI Institute in particular. Well, at that time, when rare earth was published, it was 1999 when it was finished, and it came out early in the year 2000. Um, at that time, SETI, of course, was really seeking large-scale funding from various people, and they, the last thing they wanted from a point of view was some sort of book, if it was read by anybody, that said that, in fact, why bother with SETI if these guys are right? It's a fool's errand. Why put millions of dollars into a search for something that's probably going to be so rare that if, if it does exist in the galaxy, is it close enough to even get signals from? They didn't want to hear that at all. And the funniest story, if I can say this, was I was... Uh, invited to Paul Allen's private retreat on an island with a bunch of scientists to try to come up with ideas for a new type of science center. And the book was out, and I brought a signed copy to Paul Allen, and he was standing next to the head of SETI, Jill Tarter. And I was about to hand the book over to him and Jill, who knew what it was, and she'd already actually taken the copy and annotated every single page. I mean, hours she must have done that. But it was just like that scene where some creature is, is the crucifix is up there saying the exorcist, it burns, it burns. Get that book away from him. <laughs> um, ultimately, he did give them the millions they wanted, but it was an hilarious moment. So you and Brownlee write that a planet must have an ability to maintain a planetary temperature that will allow for the existence of liquid water for almost 
quote, unimaginable periods of time. We hear the term habitable planet bandied about on a daily basis by astrobiologists and the fact that we have to have you have to have liquid water. I mean, that's kind of the, the starting point. But just how difficult is it to maintain liquid water on any sort of Earth-like planet or rocky planet over eons? I mean, billions of years. How difficult is that? Yeah, and I think this is really one of the main, main contributions that Rare Earth did. I mean, prior to our book, the term plate tectonics had never, to my knowledge, I'm probably haven't said never, of course, I'll be wrong somewhere. The Russians probably did it. But the fact that it is plate tectonics, which gives us the carbonate silicate feedback, planetary thermometer, if you will, it is plate tectonics that has allowed us to have this really constant temperature, allowing liquid water in the surface for billions of years. I mean, it's a fabulous system because plate tectonics involves subduction, where parts of the Earth's crust dives down beneath a coastline, let's say, mountains are built up. But as that part dives down, it's carrying sediment, and that sediment has calcium carbonate, tiny microorganisms on it. As these sink down, they heat. When they heat, they produce carbon dioxide. The volcanoes that explode later are giving off carbon dioxide. It gets warmer. But the interesting thing is, how do you get rid of carbon dioxide? Well, if you have big oceans, a lot of it is absorbed, but that's not going to be enough. I mean, if we have so much volcanism, we get more and more and more CO2 in the atmosphere. Why doesn't it just get so hot that we lose all the water? And it goes back to geology. Carbon dioxide, when it is in contact with silicate rocks, lava, quartz, anything that came out of these volcanoes, for instance, and all the volcanic rock on the continents... There's a chemical reaction called chemical weathering. Part of that is to produce clay, and the reaction pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere. The cool thing is, the warmer the climate is, the faster this reaction works. So as more CO2 is pumped up by volcanoes, the rate of chemical weathering, which sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere, also increases. So you've got this beautiful sort of up-down, up-down, up-down system that is, has been in balance for more than 4 billion years. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, why this, uh, why our own planet likely has plate tectonics, but tellingly, we have never discovered, a, a, there, we don't think that any other planet in our solar system had plate tectonics. And to date, obviously, we're just on the cusp of really understanding Earth-like planets, uh, extrasolar Earth-like planets. So we don't have any clue as to whether or not those planets really have plate tectonics at this point we I, I i don't know how you would determine that spectroscopically do you can can you no okay. no no you'd have but but as soon as we can visually take a picture of one of these extrasolar planets and you i just have to think that sooner or later we're, we're so clever instrumentation is so good all you need to do actually is to see a linear chain of mountains i mean if you look at where plate tectonics has built mountains on earth today um, the Cascades, the Rockies, the Urals, the Andes, all these are linear mountains because subduction is taking place, this downward thrusting of the Earth's crust beneath another plate, a continental plate. So I think we should be able to sooner or later get some clue of 
weather, you could see linear mountains. And I mean, there's other ways to make linear mountains as well, but the most common way is through plate tectonics. We had an expert early on when I was in charge of our own University of Washington part of the NASA Astrobiology Institute. One of the first people I hired was a great geologist named Solomatov, a Russian extraction. And he's one of the only people at that time, this was again the early 2000s, who started asking the question, well, I mean, what does it take not just to get plate tectonics, but to keep it? And interestingly enough, um, if you boil water, you can do anything. You can turn water into a nice model of how we have seafloor spreading. That's where lava comes up in the middle of the ocean and the plate spreads sideways. That's easy to get. The hard part are these slabs of rock which dive down under other rock. We know the consequences of these. This diving down isn't a smooth process. It's a series of jerks. Those jerks produce the largest and most dangerous earthquakes on Earth, deep subduction earthquakes. And as we know, Seattle, Washington, sooner or later, is going to get nailed by one of these, one of these eight on the Richter scale earthquakes. The giant quakes off Alaska and off Chile, all these things are caused by the friction of one plate diving down under another. So I asked Solmatov, um, how, how hard is that to happen? He said, very. If the crust is too thick, it doesn't happen. If there is a, he had all kinds of math, but he was certainly looking at, at how much lubrication there is between one gigantic plate of earth and another. How is it that this can take place? And he said, really, one of the ends of the earth that no one is talking about is the case where we don't have enough heat coming up from the surface or from deep under the earth to continue plate tectonics. And the first thing to fail will be subduction. And when this happens, there goes our thermostat. So one of the ends of the earth really will be the cessation of plate tectonics on our planet. In your book, you mentioned your planet uh, inherently needs uranium and thorium. And there was one other uh, element uh, to create that kind of heat. I forgot that. Oh. Yeah, you need the radioactive stuff, and therefore yeah. you had to have formed near some supernova. Or the type 3, I keep getting my types of supernova wrong. Type 2, type 3, one of the supernovas really is going to produce lots of heavy elements. And so you need to have been near one of those. And, of course, we now know that the rate of supernova formation is changing over time as our galaxy gets older. But it's all about location, location, location. Are you building your planet with enough metals to really give you this heavy stuff, the radioactive stuff, the stuff that you absolutely need to keep heat flow moving from the center of the planet up through to cause tectonic processes? And so that's not a, that was uh, that actually my next question. So not only do you need uh, plate tectonics to keep the, your planet's thermostat regulated to be able to have liquid water over a, a long periods of time, but you also need to be in a part of the galaxy that is kind of like the sweet spot. And this is controversial. Uh, some people have tried to come up with the a galactic habitable zone, uh, but um, what you write is that a habitable planet must inhabit a portion of the galaxy far away from other stars and many deadly catastrophes so that celestial that other celestial bodies can wreak such as supernova explosions gamma ray bursts unwanted tweaks of gravity that could throw one or more uh, planets out of the system altogether or into their central star so it's kind of a 
a mixed bag because, as you said, you have to be close enough to nearby supernovae so that you can reap the benefits of having those heavy metals that you need to generate the heat for an active uh, substructure of your planet uh, for to, to be able to facilitate plate tectonics, for instance. But, on the other hand, you have to be far enough away from gamma ray bursts and supernovae explosions so that you, you won't be wiped out every few million years, right? Yep, it's all real estate, location, location, location. And uh, as we were actually going back to the politics, one of the reasons that we were brought to task, so to speak, is that one of the people who were was helping us, a young postdoc at the University of Washington at that time, um, was also writing religious tracts on the side, but he's doing his science, very good science, and he was looking at uh, spectrographs of stars and ended up measuring the amount of metallicity depending on how far from the center of the galactic hub, if you will, um, any star was. And he found that, as others have, as you get further and further from the galactic center, and therefore in neighborhoods with fewer overtime supernovae, the amount of metallicity drops. And that his idea was that far from the galaxy, at the very edges of the galaxy, the stars out there would have low metallicity planets. You would never have enough of these heavy elements to produce a lot of heat on the inside. So astrobiologists often cite the sheer numbers of stars and galaxies as evidence that complex life elsewhere must surely have evolved somewhere. But is probability enough? You would have to be really thick to think that we are the only place where multicellular creatures not only evolved, but went for the complexity that allows higher plants and what we call animals. I mean, come on. There's just too many stars out there with too many planets per star. What are we looking at now, Bruce? 200, 300 billion stars in our Milky Way. I know that number goes up and down. Again, I, I used to hear 300, 400. Then I've, the latest estimates seem to drop down a bit of that, but gosh. That, that just seems crazy. Yeah, but, uh, I don't know. It does. But a whole bunch of them. And let's, the, the, I think the most <laughs> interesting thing that planet finding has shown us, and this was what's so crazy when Drake and Sagan came up really and thought about the Drake equation, they didn't know how many stars had planets. I mean, some people thought that having planets alone was a rare event. We just didn't know. And now we know planets are really wildly distributed and that most stars have them and they have more than a few. But on the other hand, you told me that you worry about the overselling of astrobiology, that a week does not go by without some new exoplanet being plugged as a new second Earth. <laughs> uh, and I, I just you know, thought to myself, you know, the astrobiological barrage of research papers out there of late is like trying to decide, you know, it's like trying to keep up whether coffee is good for you or not. I mean, it, you know, one week is this, one week is that. What is it? That's a great segue into really what is an Earth-like planet. I came into this as a paleontologist, and again, talking to Don Brownlee, and Don is one of the great illustrators of the world ever. He is a genius on Adobe Illustrator, and so I've stolen every great slide I've ever had. But one of the best <laughs> slides I have is he has a picture of these six globes, and one of them starts out is totally blue, and then there's another that's blue with a few scattered islands, and then 
we can see that, oh, there's more continents. And then we see one where, in fact, the continents are huge. And then we see one where the oceans are gone. And then we see one that's just this sort of orange ball. And his question is, which one of these is Earth? And the answer is all of them. All of them. He is portraying Earth from 4.5 billion years ago through continental development right up to the present and then going into the future. When we start losing the oceans, we lose the oceans entirely. The Earth is this hot, dry ball. Are they Earth-like planets? And so this is what Don's point. It was genius. No, they're not. We are an Earth-like planet. What we should think of as Earth-like is our planet as it is today, and it's got animals and plants and ice caps and all this stuff. Earth-like is a place that is habitable for complex life. So when we start talking about all these Earth-like planets, can we please distinguish, maybe we could say Earth-diameter planets or maybe Earth-density planets or some aspect thereof. But if we're going to really think about Earth-like, let's recognize that Earth-like is in the current moment. We are Earth-like and have been for some time and will be for some time. But if you go a half billion year blocks, you very quickly get out of Earth-like. I think it confuses the general public, all these press releases, you know, it, it gives the idea among the general public that, that Earth-like planets, planets like our own are just out there for the taking. And I frequently have people commenting on, on my social media posts that if, if there's a post that's, you know, fairly astrobiologically a blue sky kind of post, then people say, ah, I want to go there, I want to move there. And I just think to myself, not in your lifetime. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, well, I, I think the most Earth-like planet that will be in our solar system in the future isn't a planet at all. I mean, when the sun has gotten to the point where it's starting to expand, buy real estate on Titan or buy Europa. I mean, you could have a beautiful Hawaiian paradise <laughs> vacation site on ocean Europa because with the big sun, Earth will be gone. Nice and warm out there. It's perfect, right? right. It'll be Earth-like. I mean, the red giant sure Earth -like now. kicks in. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the crux of the rare Earth hypothesis, one of the, one of the main tenets is that because we have an anomalously large moon, and nobody talks about this very much. They don't talk about how our anomalously large moon, you know, created a ran uh, created from a random catastrophic impact event with our nascent Earth, created ocean tides at four billion years ago, were an order of magnitude larger in amplitude than those today. And you and Brownlee write in your new book proposal. As a result, our own moon may have been responsible for the tides that led to the concentration and chemical changes needed to spark the onset of complicated organics. One of the aspects of science, I think if there is one or two really great scientific questions, certainly are there other intelligences out there? I mean, we can say uh, there probably are. We can't say for sure. But the other is, can we finally get to a really realistic view of how life forms from inorganics to organics. I mean, we still are far away from producing inorganic to organic in a test tube, if you will, in a laboratory. We haven't done it. We're not even close. We can make little pieces of RNA molecules. We can make membranes. We can make lots of tiny little stuff. But we, we are miles away from being able to make even a bacterial cell, let alone a eukaryotic cell. So getting to that first bacterium, all the steps were at RNA life, 
how did we have naked RNA? I mean, we are still, after 10 or 20 years, just grasping at straws here. We're a long way away from knowing that. So define what, we what, do know, define what uh, you mean by naked RNA and, and eukaryotic. Yep, let me go back. Uh, RNA, of course, is just take your DNA strand, the double helix, rip half of it apart, and a half DNA strand is called an RNA strand. And for all of us vaccinated, thank goodness there's RNA because all these beautiful vaccines that we have now are thanks to technology using RNA molecules. But the beautiful thing about RNA and why it's invoked over and over about the origin of life is one of the big problems in trying to figure out how in the world could you have life is you have to have some sort of information that allows it to replicate. But to replicate, you have to have some catalyst. You have to have a chemical element that allows that replication to take place at an energy source. And a Nobel Prize was awarded to two biochemists who finally showed some 20 or 30 years ago that RNA has both. It can hold information, obviously, but it also self-catalyzes. You can start, and people have started building small, tiny bits of RNA in test tubes, and they will, through this self-catalysis, merge together and make ever longer RNAs. So this is your first step upward into a system that can contain information, but at the same time, it has the chemical ability to make itself longer. So we think this probably was the step that first there was RNA in the world, and then it merged together, produces DNA, which has a lot more processes involved, but RNA is still involved in it. Messenger RNA, lots of different um, jobs of this stuff. Is DNA life the only way that we can make complicated life? Well, I doubt it. I'm sure there's lots of other chemical systems that could possibly do it. But one of the, again, back to the great Don Brownlee, you know, I said, what about silicon life? This is every science fiction writer's dream, right? He said, Peter, here's the analogy. Go to a chem stores. Chemistry stores are present on every university campus. You go in, there's these great big shelves of chemicals everywhere. And up against where the, the little people, wizened little gnomes they are, at least at every place I've ever been, sitting in these windowless basements full of chemicals, <laughs> there's these great big thick books. They've got these giant books of organic chemicals. I mean, organic chemicals are, are huge. These are carbon chemicals, chemicals that go all the way from carbon tetrachloride to ethanol to methyl alcohol, all this stuff, right? Carbon does so much stuff. And then he said, go look for silicate chemistry books. They're a whole lot thinner. <laughs> there, there just isn't a lot of chemistry you can do with silica compared to carbon. I'm going, oh, that's another. I mean, probably it's a genius. So, yeah, okay, I get it. He said, look, you know, um, under the conditions where you could have water, carbon chemistry is really the only way to go. Do you think that our own Earth could have had plate tectonics without the moon? Now, see, that's the $64,000, 64 I, I don't know how much, what kind of a budget we're playing with here. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. And it's one that I don't understand why it hasn't been tackled. And going back to this first guy that I hired years ago to think about plate tectonics, it's all about how thick the crust is. If the crust is too thick, you don't get it. And exhibit number A is Venus. Venus has this great big thick crust. Now, I saw it was very interesting that recently, I think you saw too in the press, they're seeing huge hunks of that crust are squishing up against each other, some piling on. It's like 
decks of cards that you shuffle, heat coming up from Venus is causing that crust. But we also know that every few hundred million years, it appears that heat coming up finally melts the surface of Venus and the rocks go liquid and then turn back to rock again. They're not recycling like our crust does. And also, crust. also Venus has what is known as episodic overturning. It's not plate tectonics. I mean, it's just like the, I don't know, I don't know the mechanism, but the crust of Venus just kind of like overturns itself into, into, some, into something completely new and wipes out whatever cratering record there was. We need to figure out Venus. Venus has Earth gone way bad. I mean, when we go back, because of the faint sun paradox, I mean, the fact that way back when the solar system first started, our sun wasn't as energetic. It wasn't giving off as much heat. Venus probably was still close, but within a habitable zone, there should have been, could have been an Earth-like planet, if you will, with oceans and the start of continents there. Where to go? Why didn't Venus keep its oceans? That's the big question that I hope at least the NASA group's going to look at. So going back to your question about Earth, um, how did we get this crust of ours that is so thin that it is it can subduct, that it can be pushed down and just dive down beneath? A thick crust can't do that. A thin crust can. Where do we get our thin crust? And this takes me back. Speculation. And look, I'm just talking through my hat here. But Mike. If we could have a time machine and go back and we have the formation of the moon, we have that Mars-sized planet they call Thea, I believe, and it hits what would have been a smaller Earth at the time, gives up information through rock to our planet, what's left over becomes the moon. Without that collision, what is the thickness of our crust? Do we become Venus, stay Venus, and lose our oceans to space as the sun gets warmer? So there's two really huge questions here about the moon. Number one, was it intimately involved or necessary for the formation of life on Earth? And number two, was it necessary through that collision to allow us to have the geological aspect of Earth that lets it stay habitable? And uh, you actually wrote that plate tectonics gave eukaryotic life, define eukaryotic life for us. Yeah, we are eukaryotes, and what it is is just think of a bacteria, but on steroids, that's big enough to have lots of other bacterial-sized stuff in it, like our nucleus and our ribosomes and our mitochondria. All of these, of course, the, the great Lynn Margulis years ago said that what we are, complex life that we are, giant cells with a nucleus are simply what was a super large bacterium that engulfed lots of other bacteria, co-opted the regulation and the DNA systems within those into a single functioning organism. So it's this symbiotic idea, symbiosis of all these tiny bacteria coming together to produce giant cells. And these giant cells are very specialized, as we know. They themselves can turn into other kinds, muscle cells, nerve cells, all this, this differentiation that takes place. But you can't do that without a central nucleus. So we are eukaryotes, and eukaryotes didn't appear on Earth for a very long time, it appears, after the formation of life on this planet. It was a hard thing to get to, and then multicellularity took longer yet. So we have long periods where apparently you need very stable conditions, but it's not like simple evolution. There's a, there's a long period of step-by-steps that need to get done, and we're talking millions of years to get these things done. So you caution that the fossil record is humbling because of what it tells us about extinction. 
living fossils are the exception, you told me, or not the rule. Please explain what you mean by a living fossil and why that's important. Well, I, I seem to be a living fossil now in my own faculty. I can't believe I'm still alive and still spouting this stuff. <laughs> living fossils are creatures of great antiquity that just don't seem to die. Maybe I shouldn't do that. I'm going water skiing after this interview, and that could be the end of me. But living fossils give us a sense that there are so few of them because most things don't last very long. And this brings us to, I think, one of the great segues. One of the things that didn't exist, Bruce, when we wrote the first book was the much better thought out concept, which I think is huge in astrobiology, that's called the great filter. And the great filter can be applied to what is it that could possibly be causing planets to have life and then they're snuffed out. But the great filter can also be applied to life on a planet. What is it on the Earth's history, its history of life? What were the great filters there? And I like to think of the mass extinctions as filters that affect life on any planet. Um, planets are unkind places for lots and lots of different types of organisms. We only have to look at what we humans are doing to fish stocks, especially all over. I mean, fisheries are crashing every place. And so to all the poor fish, we humans are the, the agency of the great filter. But on a grander, more galactic scale, the great filters could be gamma ray bursts. We could have entire quadrants of galaxies wiped out by these energetic, hugely powerful bursts of gamma rays sweeping through space, obliterating and just eliminating life. I think you remember back in the Jimmy Carter days, they wanted to make something called a neutron bomb. Right. Neutron bomb yep. releases lots of gamma rays. The thing about a neutron bomb is you drop it on a city and the explosive force is low, but the killing force is huge. So here's where, I mean, this, how insane is this? You drop this bomb, you've killed every living creature right down to the bacteria on the surfaces. But all the buildings are still there. The streets are still there. The infrastructure is still there. You just come in and sweep away all the rotting flesh and you've, you've captured the flag, right? So it, what a horrendous weapon. And yet think of that is what these stars are blasting out through the galaxy. So that could be the great filter too. So you and Brownlee uh, write that the assumption that bacteria are easy can also be called into question that Earth life appeared very early, but to date, despite numerous false media reports, nobody has dem ever demonstrated a plausible jump from organic molecules to life. You've got to have energy. You've got to have reproduction. You've got to have replication that passes on information. Um, entropy is a terrible mistress. <laughs> Things need energy to not fly apart. I'm looking at my office now, and, and entropy is king in here. You know, <laughs> filing papers takes a lot of work, and I just don't want to do it. So entropy makes everything disordered around me. Uh, one of the great thinkers about the origin of life was saying that what life does is life makes negative entropy, that life is simply this agent that reverses entropy into order for some period of time, but to do it, you need to keep feeding energy into the body. Please, uh, once you, please give us a, a parenthetical definition of entropy for those who are not familiar. Entropy is a, a, it's a process in the universe leading to disorder. Things 
don't want to stay ordered. That when you have, for instance, um, compounds, specific chemical compounds, uh, they are held together by various forces. If those forces are dissolved, the atoms themselves all spread apart. Life really needs a lot of energy to stay, keep all the ordered states necessary for the circulation, for the processing of information, for all the stuff that life does. You need a lot of ways to metabolize. And so in this particular case, uh, entropy, the ultimate entropy for a living organism is death. And finally, that body would just fall apart, rot apart, turn into liquid, disappear, get chewed up by lots of stuff. That's entropy. So in Forbes, you told me that you see human evolution as a low probability event, in large part because brains are expensive. Quote, no cell in biology requires more oxygen than a nerve cell, which has to fire a chemical charge across a long, thin brain cell, you told me. To have enough energy for intelligence is going to require oxygen, and getting high oxygen levels is very difficult to do. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the, again, I keep going back to all these great scientists that I've had the privilege of being around, but one of the greatest on our campus is David Catling. And many years ago, two decades ago now, um, he, he was asked the question, could there be complex life that is capable of motion, movement? I think what really sets apart we animals from everything else is how much motion and, and movement we do. And he said, no, I mean, unless you have oxygen, oxygen is going to be the only way that you can produce the chemistry necessary for large-scale motion. But in a similar way, nerve cells and the way nerve cells work are hugely energy destroyer users. I mean, you use up an enormous amount of energy. Even more so, what I thought was, was staggering, Bruce, I just saw a recent um, article about what happens to the really greatest chess grandmasters during the chess matches. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the Boris Spassky types, the Bobby Fishers. Um, those people over the course of the weeks of one of these matches can lose from 10 to 20 to 30 pounds of body weight. Just sitting there thinking so hard, these guys with all the nervous energy and everything else they're doing, they're losing weight like crazy. There's a huge energy sink into this big neural events that we do. Uh, why didn't we get human scale intelligence hundreds of millions of years ago? I mean, we certainly had mammals back in the Cretaceous. We had very good mammals in the Jurassic. We had mammals in the Triassic. We had lots of dinosaurs. We've got some really brainy birds. We've got parrots that can clearly use human language to some extent but none of them build radio telescopes. What is it? Why is it that it took so long for a primate? And why is it the primates got to the point where we have these brains that we can talk about this? So this, again, is another one of the great mysteries. I mean, if intelligence is such a great thing to have, why did it take so long to get to sort of the level of thinking and technology that we have? But once you have it, what about the L factor? Uh, the longevity factor in the L uh, Drake equation, the longevity of civilizations. Are you optimistic about the lifetimes of civilizations over very long time frames? See, billions of years given both astrophysical and planetary hazards. We're not talking about people who just kill themselves off a la the Badia hypothesis, which, re which we're going to touch on. But uh, basically, you know, astrophysical killers like 
gamma ray birth, supernova, that sort, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, the biggest, biggest, I think the biggest threat to human civilization right now, still, in in many ways, to me, is is sea level rise through the global warming that we're doing. But on another scale, we don't have to get hit by a dinosaur killing asteroid to really change civilization. I don't think it would wipe out all humans, but it would certainly wipe out our agriculture. I mean, right now we have over 7 billion people. We're barely keeping them all fed. We know what the volcano Krakatoa did when you had this huge volcanic event in Indonesia and they called it the, the summers without summer. I mean, all the winemaking in France for two summers disappeared in the 1800s. That was simply a single point source volcanic eruption. Let's think of one kilometer asteroid hitting the surface of the Earth at 25 kilometers per second impact, creating a crater of what, maybe 50 kilometers, 20 kilometers in diameter. But that's going to wipe out agriculture for a decade or more. I mean, we're going to have a really long period where we don't feed ourselves well. And you also wrote a, a book called the, the Medea Hypothesis. Is that right? I was responding to the, there is the, the well-known Gaia Hypothesis. And Gaia, G-A-I-A, is the Greek name for the good mother. And a man named Lovelock years ago in Britain came up with this idea that, in fact, there are interconnectedness of biological systems on the planet that have increased habitability. I mean, he's totally correct in the sense that habitability, the way, the place, the number of species on the planet, how many species there are, how many animals there are, how many plants there are, all that is connected to recycling of elements and elemental systems. And that life itself can change this parameter. But on the other hand, this whole idea of Gaia, which really led to a brand new area of science called Earth System Science, which is now taught in every great university. We want to know how carbon cycles and nitrogen, phosphorus, and all these elements that life needs, how do they recycle? How do we keep having them replenished? But on the other hand, it was seized by the New Asers to say that, in fact, Gaia will, the planet itself is alive to the extent that all the bad things that we humans will do, the planet is busy running around behind us, cleaning up behind us with little broom and dust pants, all oh, you bad humans, and that all we have to do is just exist, and Gaia, the living planet, will clean up our mess for us. So it kind of seemed to me like this gives people an excuse to just keep trashing the place. You know, it's like the band that checks into the hotel. They go in and tear the place apart and throw the beds out the windows and walk out. <laughs> well, the guy hypothesis is, oh, no, no, the band goes in there and they bring paint in and they paint the walls and they put in new furniture. After their stay, the band has made the place better. Life has done that. It's a better earth because life is Gaia and has made it all better. And I couldn't stand that crap. So I started thinking about because I had a mother who had a great classical education. And she had me read a book by Robert Graves, the great English poet. And he wrote a book called Hercules, My Shipmate, a retelling of Jason and the Golden Fleece, where Jason goes about in his, in his boat, the Argo, and sails around and gets this fleece and steals it and back and forth. Anyway, he ends up marrying the daughter of the priest he steals the fleece from. And Jason was a scoundrel. He may have been a very good pirate, very good at stealing golden fleece, but he was a bad husband. And he <laughs> cheated on the wife. They had two kids. And then finally, she was so angry with her husband, she murdered them. Huh. Medea is bad mother in Greek. She was the worst mother in Greek mythology. So I started thinking about, 
the mass extinctions for the big five were caused by bacteria. I mean, ultimately, you had a bunch of volcanoes blowing off, but what really the kill mechanisms was by life. And this idea that life poisons itself quite often. Life isn't making everything better. In fact, as we well know, that we produce an awful lot of chemical waste. We produce an awful lot of nastiness. All we need to look at is what happened to Seattle, Washington this last week. 105 degrees, 106 degrees. I was born in the city. Never did we have temperatures that high. But it's also a consequence of very Median humans doing the Median things we humans do. I'm just unregulated waste, and the waste we're talking about is carbon dioxide and the plastic in the in the Pacific All Ocean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, so that's that's another why thing. I wrote that book in 2005 or six or something, um, and it was it actually got its own Wikipedia page. And last year, somebody put a play on called the Medea Hypothesis, which I was I didn't get to go. It was in London in lockdown, but I guess everybody gets murdered, so I probably it wasn't a happy ending. It wasn't a comedy, put it that way. <laughs> So, but the crux, let's get back to the rare earth. The crux of the rare earth hypothesis seems to be that intelligent life on earth is rare because we are the end result of a lot of serendipitous Goldilocks type events. After 20 years, does the new astrobiological research and paleontology indicate that we humans are a fluke of nature or are we perhaps more common than when you first published, you and Brownlee first published rare earth? Fluke. Fluke. And <laughs> we're, we're still a fluke, are we? Fluke, fluke, baby, <laughs> fluke. Uh, oh, I guess what, what has, of all the exoplanet discoveries, and so this is what I think the biggest difference between what we knew when we wrote Rare Earth and what we know now is that in between there have been, Bruce, you know, it's 3,005, how many exoplanets are now known? It's just, I can't keep track. It keeps going up so fast. Thousands. Thousands, I yeah. I think something around 4,000. I don't know. 5,000. You know, when you wrote your book. There were 60. The, the, when I wrote my book, yeah, my, when I wrote my book, they were all these hot Jupiters. They were, I, I think it was 60 or 62. And now people don't give a damn about hot Jupiters. <laughs> I remember. No, no, it's <laughs> they could care less about hot Jupiters. We were all excited about hot Jupiters. And now, you know, people in their backyards are finding hot Jupiters. And who cares? You know, it's like, it's funny to me. It's, what strikes me as the best example of how bad this, this whole idea about all these Earths is when the Trappist system was found of these, they're called the Trappist. Is that, is that from the sound of music? I mean, who in the world would name a planet the Trappist? <laughs> that's, a Von, that's a Von Trapp family. Sound there you go. So anyway, trying to figure out how anybody could look at these things which are going around their star in a matter of days, days. I don't care how close to the size of Earth they are. Their same face is always pointed toward those miserable little stars. M-class dwarfs, as you know, Bruce, are the most common stars in any galaxy. Therefore, there will be more planets that are surrounding M-class stars than all the other planets combined, in all probability, around all the other different kinds of stars. Of course, SETI is looking very hard at the possible habitability of Planets that are tidally locked. Our moon is tidally locked. Our moon has its exact same face always towards the Earth. So let's pretend that we are the star, that the moon is a planet, and that we are blasting that face of the moon constantly. 
whereas the backside of that planet always facing outer space. So if you have an ocean and if you have atmosphere and one side of that thing is always in the face of a star and so close to it, the solar flares are going to blast whatever ocean you have on that side. Imagine the wind speeds going on between that hot and cold. Now, try to imagine that you could get any life at all in such a place, let alone civilization. And this is, I think, the major debate aspect that needs to be looked at. We need to spend a lot more time thinking about tidally locked planets as being Earth equivalents. Yeah, but, uh, but a lot I of maintain people, they're not. But a lot of astrobiologists still today think that life would be possible on these tidally locked planets. I mean, they don't seem to be daunted by that. <laughs> I no. wouldn't want to live on one, but I mean, you know. I, I think life is possible. I bet. Tons of them have microbes. That's what I bet. That, but I bet you know, they almost think, none of them have complex life. I think they are the perfect, perfect example of the rare earth hypothesis. So what's holding us back in terms of research? The way the subject is written about, not just in the media, but the kind of research papers that are being written. I really think some of the biggest questions in astrobiology are still really poorly funded. And let's go back to the origin of life. That's a very politically difficult thing to do in America because so much of our politicians are wedded to a religious doctrine that makes original life stuff uncomfortable. And it makes them, at least even in the Senate, it's very uncomfortable. Um, original life stuff would, should be a major area of biology. You would think a whole division of NSF would be set up about original life. And yet it's come through astrobiology and a few other funding things kind of in the back door. Why aren't we doing more in that direction? And because there are some very politically uncomfortable deals. Stem cells, as you know, this is a hugely political hot potato. Much research using stem cells could forward biology. But because of the controversy, when does life begin? Because of the controversy of where we're getting these, that it is an area you just can't touch it anymore. So um, I, I can't speak to a broader sense, but it is frustrating, and I, and I do exactly hear what you're saying. This is a, another $64,000 question. What form do you think intelligent communicating life might take if it has evolved on another planet in our galaxy? I always thought one of the best ways to try to find intelligent life would be to see if you could use a, a spectrograph get a great telescope, and if you could find mercury vapor signals, you were probably getting streetlights on an alien planet. I said this to Jill Charter, the head of SETI, and she says, that's a great idea. It is a there's great idea. So many, it is a great there's idea. There's only so many different ways you can make a streetlight, right? And mercury would make a, a huge signature. Um, it's like biology, too. There's only certain ways that certain structures are made. It's called conversion and parallel evolution. Convergence, we, we will always expect to find a fish-like shape, no matter what time in the fossil record, because fish-like shapes are what physics will dictate is most efficient. So I think what we do is we look for technological signatures that are the most efficient way to do things. Radio is extremely efficient. I mean, what we're doing now, we've had radio for a century or more, and it's, we're good at it. But how much better can we be? People are saying, well, advanced species will have different forms of communication. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are certain things that just don't get better through time. But this is not the radio. But this is not radio. This is uh, Internet. I, I, I'm not certain that, a, that an alien species would detect this Internet transmission. 
Oh, no. But on the other hand, certainly en energy signatures involved with it. Um, the fact that we have power lines, we have grids, that we have these networks that are set up in certain, certain ways, there's going to be leaking of energy. And I think you know this idea about the Dyson spheres where people are thinking, well, maybe advanced civilizations, I forget which one it is, a type one, type two, type three civilization, will enclose their entire star so they get all of that energy. And we should be able to see those sooner or later. But I think what's most exciting and what's scariest of all to me, Bruce, first of all, was the release of the UFO stuff. The fact that this, that our, our government even came out, even had the temerity to come out and say, well, we're not sure. We can't say they're not aliens. Okay. But on the other hand, we are in a moment where everybody, after coming out of the pandemic, wants there to be aliens. I just, it's just, I want there to be aliens. But where are they? Enrico Fermi, come out of the grave. Where are they? And it's still a question. That paper that came out recently that suggested that an alien civilization could take over the galaxy in far less time than people think about it. If that were the case, we would find some evidence of it. So what puzzles you most about our own evolution into intelligent life? And what puzzles you most about the possible evolution of complex life in the cosmos? Well, evolution really takes place in tiny populations. It doesn't take place like a broad scale. There's this awakening and everybody also goes up 20 IQ points just across the board. No, evolution takes place in isolated settings with a few small individuals. I mean, I'm going back and looking at uh, the Nobel Prize winners and there was that small valley in Hungary where three or four of those who helped build the atomic bomb were all born within a year or two. I met Edward Teller, who was one of these. Um, and he, he was, he was Bela Lugosi brought back to life. I mean, this is the guy who built the hydrogen bomb. And he was funny without meaning to be, but he was like scary too. But there was a bunch of these Nobel Prize winners in one tiny little valley. And there was a genetics situation going on there where really there were a couple of parents that for whatever reason had genes that caused and passed on enormous intelligence. So clearly somewhere back in Africa, probably I think, I, I really think that our human intelligence as we know it now is, is a byproduct of the great Toba eruption of 72,000 years ago where humanity was almost wiped out. We had this gigantic eruption and the entire Mediterranean uh, hominids, there's another book just came out about this when humans almost died. That small bottleneck, clearly some super genius for the time survived that and was able to populate the world going forward with some very smart cookies. And so we start seeing these two great changes in civilization. And there was a second about 35,000 years ago where some small population, all of a sudden we start seeing cave art. We don't see that before 35, 32,000 years ago. Some small band had this amazing change and we start seeing totally different kinds of humans and it starts appearing in the record. So why are we humans so obsessed with this philosophical quest to understand our place in the cosmos? You know, know thyself is what one of the great philosophers said. I mean, some of it is, I used to be able to stare at my navel. I can't bend over that well anymore. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think just the reason that we have religion, I think, is that we recognize there's more than there is to be seen. There's something out there we're not seeing. 
is a mystery. And we are creatures where questions, I think, really drive. And I think this, this ability to be curious is also genetic. We see it in the great scientists. This curiosity gene drives people forward. It's like an itch and you can't scratch it. Scientific method is simply a tool to help your curiosity gene get scratched. Peter, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? I could be reached at A-R-G-O, Argo, at uw.edu, and I can answer any question. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Peter Ward, thanks so much for updating us on the current state of the rare earth hypothesis. And Bruce, let me thank you for all of us. It's people like you and podcasts, and it's those who, like you, try to get others to talk. Society gives we scientists so much money, and what we need to do is give back. And you are the medium through which we can do that, so thank you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.